me start with that scripture um, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. This is my main scripture for the morning, and somebody brought it in the worship, so let's start there. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice it starts with the Spirit. Verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, Spirit of the Lord, and it ends with the Spirit, which comes from the Lord, just in case you slip into the flesh. Both are reminders of the fact God has called us and filled us with His Spirit, and He wants us to grow into the image of Jesus. That word transformed, the root word for that is metamorphosis. There's a metamorphosis that we go through. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us now. Does that make sense? And I'm going to keep reminding you of that this morning because my topic this morning is growing in God. But growing in God is a supernatural work. That's the thing that makes our faith unique. It's a supernatural work. Yes, people can get in the way of growing. But growing is something that comes of God. When Paul was trying to explain something to the Corinthians and they were arguing about who the best apostle was, he said, "Um, I planted the seed by preaching the gospel. You received it by faith. Apollos watered the seed. But guess what? God is the one that made it grow. And I find that so encouraging. Even when I'm discipling people, Sometimes you feel like, how am I going to get this person to see this? How am I going to get this person to change? How am I going to get... But actually, God is the one that makes us grow. And I find that encouraging in pastoring, but I also find that encouraging for me. Because sometimes I get frustrated with myself and I wonder, am I ever going to change? Or am I going to just keep tripping over my own feet spiritually for the rest of my life? But the Bible says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we are being metamorphosized. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus. And it starts by saying, we with unveiled faces, we are beholding the glory and the image of Christ. Christ is held up as the image of God who we worship. But as we behold Him, like we did this morning, as we by faith gaze on Him, worship Him, look to Him, we get transformed into His image. It's not as we look inward, but as we look to to Christ that we are transformed. It's encouraging, hey? I want to just start um, with a little personal example of how important it is that we grow in God. Maybe you can put up that uh, photo. This is a graph. Um, When Namile was born, she was premature. She came, how many weeks early, Zans? Six weeks. She came six weeks early. So you have three trimesters. She skipped the last one, basically. She got two out of three trimesters. And this is her growth curve. So the jaggedy one with dots going up and down and looking very irregular, 
is her growth curve. The green one, that line just above it, is that the, that's, that's the normal, the goal, weight. So this is measuring her weight. And we'd measure it every, I think every week. Uh, we'd weigh her. Um, and every time we'd go to the doctor and we would weigh her, myself and Zandi would experience intense anxiety, wondering if her growth curve was going to go up or whether it would go down. And so you can see it was an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> because you can see some weeks it went up and some weeks it went down. It was a most discouraging thing. After an entire week of staying up almost all night trying to get her to drink that wretched milk in the bottle. For hour after painful hour, getting to the doctor and finding out that she had lost weight. And so that was the struggle that Zandi and I went through, oftentimes very late or very early in the morning, depending on which time the feed was. Um, And we wanted her to grow because it is absolutely essential to a newborn baby that they grow. And so we'd measure their weight and we'd measure her length. And she didn't have any problem growing lengthwise, but she refused to pick up weight. Um, which for you, many of you, you would think, well, what's wrong with that? I've been trying to lose weight for a long time now. But when you're a baby, if a baby doesn't grow at the right rate and their growth gets stunted for any reason, that is like the ultimate nightmare for a parent or for a doctor because it can mean death for a baby if they, if they stunt in their growth. And so it was very, very important that we got that milk down her throat by any means necessary, whatever time of day or night in order for her to grow. But I don't think we always necessarily think that God feels the same way about you and me. Have you thought about that? It's important to God that we keep growing. Have you thought about that before? That verse that I mentioned, that we are growing, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. It sounds very spiritual, but it's talking about spiritual growth. Growing into the image of Christ. And if we, for whatever reason, get spiritually stunted in our growth, that's very concerning for God. Because He's put His Spirit in us to transform us and to change us, and so that we keep growing into the image of God. And so the question becomes, and the Bible speaks a lot about spiritual maturity, but it sounds very... um, Abstract. What is spiritual maturity? Spiritual maturity in God's understanding is love. To perfectly love is perfect maturity. That's simple and hard and requires a lot of faith and grace. Because to love like Christ loves is a supernatural work. Absolutely supernatural and so it's simple, but it's hard. And what, what I wanted to do right now before I go on to some of the things that sometimes stunt Christians' growth, I wanted to actually just put up that, that very famous passage about love. And now you could do like a 10-part sermon series just taking each line. I won't be able to do that. But I did feel like the Lord wanted to hold up His standard of love because it reflects the nature of Christ, but it also reflects the goal of what God is transforming you into. So as we go through each verse, if as I read the verse you think, oh my goodness, I'm so bad at that. 
Don't get discouraged. Be remembered, be reminded of what I've already said five times. The Spirit is transforming you into the image of Christ. Amen? So maybe you can put that passage up. I might add a little bit of commentary as we go, um, but I won't be able to expound the whole passage. But just as I was going through this material, I was trying to pick up on what does God want to emphasize. There's so many things you could say, but specifically for us, what I felt the Holy Spirit emphasizing. Love is patient. There's a whole sermon. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. A bit of commentary there. To be boastful means to be constantly drawing attention to yourself. That is what boastful is. Love is not boastful. Love doesn't draw attention to itself constantly. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. To be easily angered is to be quick-tempered, to quickly lash out at people, to have a short fuse. It keeps no record of wrongs. God doesn't keep record of your wrongs. And love keeps no record of the wrongs that others have done to me. That is the nature of true forgiveness. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes, always perseveres. In another translation, when it says always trusts, it says love always believes the best about other people. That's quite hard to do. If you're a bit older, it's easier to get jaded and to assume the worst about people, to get cynical. But love, the nature of God and the nature of God's love is to always and constantly remain hopeful about our friends and family and to believe the best for them. To believe the best of them instead of assuming the worst about their intentions and their motives. And so this passage is the goal. The goal is love. And love is a fruit of the Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. And so to live consistently in all of these things is to be Christ-like. To live consistently in this love remains constantly remaining in Christ. Being filled perpetually with the Holy Spirit. And so I wanted to just mention three things which I have noticed and have felt the Holy Spirit wanted me to speak about that can stunt our growth in spiritual maturity, the, the one thing, the first thing, which we've already been doing in worship, is to be consistently filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to just put up um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Um, it says, do not get drunk on wine. What, a, what an apt word for Cape Town. But that's not the point I wanted to pick out here, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how many of you know that the promise of the gospel is that a Messiah would come, he would pay for our sins, we'd be forgiven and washed clean, so that we could receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
the person of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness and the washing clean is to make way for the gift, which is the Spirit, whom we receive by faith in Jesus. So we believe in Jesus, we repent towards the God, the Father, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be saved. And until you've repented towards God, put your faith in Christ, and been filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not yet a Christian. That is what it means. It's a Trinitarian relationship. Does that make sense? But this phrase here, what doesn't really come through very strongly in this particular translation, sometimes the tenses get lost in the translation, is an ongoing tense to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled once, but we are continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And I make a point of this because I find many Christians do get filled with the Holy Spirit when they get saved, but they sometimes neglect to be, go on continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's great to be filled with the Spirit when you got saved. But in order to be filled with love and walk in maturity and to grow in your faith, you are going to need to refill your petrol tank, spiritually speaking, every single day. If you just put up that passage of love on your wall and try and remind yourself and brainwash yourself into acting loving, you're not going to get it right unless you are consistently filled with the Holy Spirit. You will leave this place. If you have encountered Jesus this morning with us, you will leave this place more loving. Through no strength of your willpower, but through the transforming. The Holy Spirit has got this influence on our hearts. It gives us, he gives us soft hearts. He gives us gracious hearts. You'll probably be more gracious to your wife after you leave this place, unless you've got a very hard heart, in which case you might need some repentance as well. But there's a, wine has got a way. I am speaking from a little bit of personal experience, but not a lot. It's got a way of making people more gracious, sometimes too gracious. It makes you jolly and festive and cheerful and loving and gracious towards others if you drink a lot of it. That's, why, that's one of the reasons why wine is an apt metaphor for the Holy Spirit. He naturally makes you more gracious and more kind when you are filled with Him. I want to go on to the next verse in Ephesians 5 verse 19 and 20 because I think there's some insight here into how we go on being filled. So maybe you agree with me. I need to be more continually, more consistently filled with the Holy Spirit. But how do I do that? I believe this is an insight into how. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that in a word? Gratitude? Worship. That is a summary of worship. It does involve singing, but importantly, it comes from the heart and it's filled with gratitude and praise and thanks towards God. That, in a, in a nutshell, is worship. How do you remain consistently filled with the Spirit while you remain consistently in a place of worship? How many of you have noticed, um, Ramal was telling me a very funny story about this at work the other day, listened to worship in his earphones and found he was becoming too Pentecostal in the marketplace. But how many of you found that when you are worshiping God consistently, you experience the presence of the Lord? I remember going on a very long road trip 
to Jeffrey's Bay with a bunch of friends. And they were playing worship music in the car the whole way there. And I remember stopping at one of the petrol stations and feeling like I just, I, I was so like hyped. I, I, I felt so energized and like so like, in, and I was thinking, I don't know why I'm feeling so joyful and like energized. And then I realized we've been playing worship music for the last six hours in the car. And my spirit, even though I wasn't thinking about it here, my spirit was, was, was being empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Worship has got a way of nourishing our spirits. And being filled with the Holy Spirit is essential to spiritual growth. So if you don't want to stunt your spiritual growth, you need to be faithful and consistent in worshiping God. Worship is essentially turning my gaze away from myself towards God. Worship is really good at that, isn't it? Even when you're worshiping this morning, suddenly you find you're thinking about God more than you're thinking about yourself. And it's setting my love and my affection on Him. Setting my love and affection on Him. It's acknowledging my dependence on Jesus. Did you notice, even when you're worshiping this morning, worship has got a natural way of leading me from independence to dependence on God. You start singing things like, God, I need you. I see how much I need you. If I don't have you, Jesus, I'll just die. That's a fruit of worship. And so as I worship him, this is what I do. I, say, I, I look to him and I, and I start thanking him. I say, God, I'm, I love you. I'm so in awe of you, God. God, you created the heavens and the earth. You created me. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for filling me with your spirit. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that even today, you've got a plan for my life and you love me and you are leading me and that you have forgiven me. And then I just begin to thank him. And I begin to worship him and say, God, I love you more than anything in the world. I set all my affection on you. I love you, Jesus. I need you, God. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Empower me with your love and your grace to worship you and love you and glorify you and reflect you today. That's how I pray. I encourage you to do the same. That is prayer, but it's also worship. And we go on being filled. Amen? Number two. Don't neglect the basics of the Christian faith. Why do I say this? Because sometimes we make Christianity too complicated. And in neglecting the basics of the faith, we stunt our spiritual growth. I remember a famous story, well, it's not famous, but Kia Taylor told us the story. He used to be in the special forces in the army. And in basic training, they teach you the basic things you need to do right consistently if you're in the front lines and bullets are flying in order to survive. How to load your rifle, how to clean your rifle. And then he mentioned when you are shooting from an embankment, when you pop up and shoot, you let off a few rounds, and you go back down again, don't pop up in the same place. Because the enemy will see you shooting from there. And the next time you pop up, he's ready. And you'll put a bullet through your head. And they got told this. And him and his friends were very, very veteran, experienced in battle. Battle-hardened. Professionals. And his friend got killed. And his friend got killed because he forgot the basics. He went up and he popped up in the exact same position that he went down. And the most 
specialized unit in the army, and he was killed for neglecting the basics. And I'm mentioning this story because it is profoundly true for us as Christians. Even when I sit with people, and sometimes we sit with people and their marriages and the things that they are struggling with, and they, they seem like incredibly complex problems, but they almost inevitably come from neglecting the basics of the Christian faith. And some of the most mature Christians that I know have just gotten incredibly good at doing the consistently doing the basics of the faith well. They're not necessarily very clever, not necessarily very gifted, but they do the basics well. I want to encourage you in your faith. Don't neglect your spiritual disciplines. Your consistency in pushing into the Lord is what will, well, what will propel you in growing to become more and more like Jesus. Amen? There's so many things I could say on this. I'm just going to pick up on two. There's that song, read your, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I just thought of it now, but I won't sing it because it's uh, more for Sunday school than. But profoundly true. Because the first point I'm going to say is read your Bible every day. I'm, this is such a, 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 an old Christian thing to say. I'm going I'm to spice it up a bit and give you some results from a survey that was done on Christians based on how much they read their Bibles. Does that sound interesting? And they were measuring the effects of regular Bible reading on Christians. Christians who read their Bible never. Christians who read their Bible once a week. Christians who read their Bible twice, three times, four times, five times a week. What was the effect on Christians based on how often they read their Bibles? Now, this is not a formula. You understand that? We know that Christianity is not about formulas. It's just, it's just an example of how Bible reading can transform your spiritual life. They found that for people who read their Bible once or twice or three times a week, there was no measurable change in the people's behavior and their spiritual walk with God. One to three times a week didn't really seem to make much of a difference. But for people who read their Bible four times a week or more, there was a massive uptick on the graph in measurable things that they were measuring. Here's some statistical feedback. For people reading their Bible four or more times a week, feeling lonely dropped by 30%. Anger issues dropped by 32%. Bitterness in relationships, you've got a tough marriage, 40% dropped, 40%. Alcoholism dropped 57%. Sex outside of marriage dropped 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. Dropped 60%. Viewing pornography dropped 61%. Now, how crazy is this? Sharing your faith with others jumped by 200%. Discipling others jumped by 230%. All I'm saying is don't neglect the basics of the Christian faith. If you want to grow, and you're neglecting some of the basics like reading your Bible and praying every day. You won't grow. God has given us these means of grace to fuel us as Christians, to strengthen us, to nourish us. Reading the Bible consistently turns my gaze back to Jesus. It reminds me of my identity in Christ. It reminds me that I'm a part of a bigger story, and it nourishes my soul and strengthens me 
to walk the Christian walk. If you neglect it, you won't grow. You'll stunt in your growth. Amen? Does that make sense? Here's another one. Regularly go to church. Profound this morning, eh? Deeply profound. Regularly go to church. This sounds very obvious. Can I just say, as a congregation, we're not very good at this one. Interesting fact. I think it's because we're busy and we've got busy. We've got a lot going on in the city because we're city slickers. We've got a very active social lives and it's a beautiful city. We we tend to neglect this one, but. Christianity, our faith that God has put us in, thrives in community. Can I say regular community? Regularly gathering with the saints, worshiping God together, hearing the message of the gospel being preached. This doesn't really add to my point, but it's interesting, so I'll mention it anyway. In research, it showed that people who regularly go to church, their their blood pressure dropped. It lowers your blood pressure. Anybody with high blood pressure in this place? It lowered rates of depression and suicide. People statistically had better marriages. I'll spice it up into add, and add because it was in the survey. They had better sex lives as well. But they're moving swiftly along. They, they found that people's mortality rate dropped. People were 20 to 30 percent. 20 to 30% less likely to die over a 15-year period. It actually makes you live longer to consistently go to church. Who knew? Not just eternal life, but actually physical mortality. And people, people generally, people who consistently at church generally slept better as well. Now, these studies were done by unbelievers. Eh? This is a secular study. So they were, some of the people doing the, the reviews on this were, were genuinely shocked. Anyway... My point is to consistently do the basics well. Remember your basic training if you want to grow. And the last point I want to mention, but I want to spend a little bit of time here because I felt the Holy Spirit really burdened me with this one, is to consistently grow in my faith. I need to learn the skill of owning my own faults. Owning my own faults. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read what Jesus had to say about this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 to 5. I'm mentioning this for us as a congregation, but this is particularly true and relevant for our generation. I'll explain what I mean. Our generation is very, very bad at this, and I'll explain why. Have you got it? Uh, Matthew 7, verse 4 and 5. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I've always known this passage, but it strikes me as particularly profound now for some reason. Uh, What's interesting about this is Jesus is trying to point out a natural human tendency to be exceptionally good at seeing how other people fail, but, but completely ignorant to our own failings and flaws. And he uses the example of having a plank in your eye. And it occurred to me, if if you do this with your arm, if you like completely cover your eye, 
Do you know you can't, I can't actually see my hand. Can you, can you see my hand covering my eye? I can't, I can't actually see my hand covering my eye. It's very obvious to everybody else that I've got my hand in, or a plank in front of my eye, but I can't see it. That's what he's trying to illustrate. We have a natural tendency to not see our own stuff. And when conflict happens and relational breakdown happens, it will be glaringly obvious to you what the other person's fault is, but you won't be able to see your own. And that's not because it's not there. It's because you can't see it. Uh, and so Jesus is pointing this out. I want to give you a, just a very uh, practical example of this. In popular evangelical culture, there's a debate going on, a discussion going on about purity and modesty in the church. I'm not sure if you know about it. And this conversation really irritates me, but you'll see why. So on the one hand, you've got men saying that they're struggling with lust issues because women don't dress modestly. That's what the men are saying, right? And the women are saying, men need to take care of their own lust issues. Don't put that on me. I'm going to dress how I want to dress and be free because I'm free in Christ. So don't put your issues on me. And then they go to and fro like this. Now, what's painfully obvious about this is that they both have a massive plank in their eye and are trying to take the speck out of the other one's eye. When you stand before God, he's not going to ask you what that person was wearing. He's going to ask you, did, as a man, did you take every thought captive? Did you pursue purity and holiness and integrity before? Did, I'm, I'm not interested in what she was wearing. And to the woman, he's, he's going to say, did I ask you to dress modestly? Yes or no? Did you do it? Yes or no? Don't tell me what the men's expectations were or what the society told you. Or what. This is a classic example, and I'm only mentioning the example to illustrate the point that as humans, we have this tendency to shift the emphasis to someone else and neglect what God is speaking to me. There's a very profound example of this if we contrast David and Saul. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. They were both kings in their own time. They both sinned in pretty spectacular ways. I'll tell you what their sin was. David's sin, if you had to make it a competition, which we don't like to, or I like to make things into a competition, but God doesn't. If, you had to comp if the two were competing with one another, I would say David was ahead of the sinning race because he had adultery with a woman and killed her husband, Uriah. Maybe you know the story. He was the king. He abused his authority. He slept with a man's wife, and then he killed the man afterwards to cover it up. That, that is a spectacular fail, morally. I think you'd all agree. They, uh, Saul's sin, there are two spectacular fails that are listed in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. The first one, God asked him to conquer a city and to devote the whole city to destruction, destroy it all. But he didn't. He kept the valuables and the jewels and the treasures and he gave it to his men. That was his sin. Secondly, he called all of Israel to battle, to fight against the Philistines. And before they went to war, they always called the priest to come and make a sacrifice to God so that God's favor would be with them and that they would win the fight. That was the tradition. So he was waiting for Samuel to come to make the sacrifice. And Samuel, as a good pastor does, was late. Not true. Samuel came late. 
And so Saul found himself in the predicament. The Philistines were gathering and they were starting to look more and more intimidating. His own armory was scattering. They were disappearing very quickly and silently into the hills. And, Sa- and Samuel was running late. So he figured, I'm going to make the sacri- I'm going to do the sacrifice myself. Then we can find God's favor. I'll, I'll summon the troops and we'll go off to war. And that showed a lack of faith in his part. And true to form, Samuel arrived just after Saul was finished making the sacrifice. Now, what's interesting about these two stories is how they responded. Because God sent a prophet to confront David, to confront Saul. And God will do the same with us. He will usually send people to confront you. Maybe friends, maybe family, maybe your community leader, maybe Luke Hulley, your lead. Whoever it is. Whoever it is, if it's very serious, then you get. But it's interesting to see how they responded. The one responded with true repentance. The other one rep- responded by looking at the speck and neglecting the plank. And we'll see the difference. So this is, how, this is how Saul responded when the prophet came to confront him. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 11. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, now just take note of what he says here. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come on time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So listen to this. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. It was just the nature of the circumstance. It was a very unique situation. My army was letting me down. The prophet was letting me down. And the Philistines were gathering. And so, by the, can you see what he's doing here? He's, make, he's blaming everybody else for their failures and neglecting the fact that he sinned terribly against the Lord by offering up a sacrifice. And only priests were called to do that. And then you get David. David was also confronted by the prophet. And he, re- he immediately owns his sin, takes responsibility for his actions and turns to God and repents and asks for forgiveness. In fact, he writes a whole psalm. And it's one of the most beautiful psalms. I encourage you to read it. It's Psalm chapter 51. I'm just going to pick out verse 1 to 4. Listen to David's response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Just keep that up there. I think what what enabled David to respond in true repentance, what he had a profound revelation of the mercy of God. I think one of the reasons why we do a soul is because we are afraid God's going to reject us if we own up to our sins. David had a profound revelation of the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God. And so he throws himself onto the mercy of God and he says, God, I know you're merciful. But would you forgive me? And when we have a revelation of God's mercy towards us, we're less inclined to be um, 
defensive about our own sin. In Psalm 103 verse 8, this is what David said about God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. In response to this, we're just going to break bread together. Because I feel like until breaking bread together has got such a way of reminding us of the compassion and the grace of God. Amen? But I, I feel like the takeaway from this for us is that when God begins to stretch us and make us to grow, when we're not acting loving towards others and He begins to challenge us, I believe God is calling us to be a generation that acknowledges quickly, God, you know I'm a sinner. I'm not even surprised, you're not even surprised that I have failed again. God, would you have mercy on me? God, would you change me? God, would you wash me clean and give me your grace to grow? I feel like he's calling us to be that kind of a generation. We live in a generation which has gotten expert at blaming society, blaming the way my parents raised me, blaming the disappointments I've experienced from leaders, blaming, and all of those things are true. But yet God wants us to respond as David did and say, God, against you only have I sinned. Wash me, cleanse me, make me new. I want to grow. If we don't get this right, we'll stunt in our growth. We won't grow into the image of Christ. And God will often use, and I don't like this about God's ways, he will often use the people I least want to confront me to confront me with myself. Have you noticed that? Don't put up your hand because it might be your wife. But God will... God will often use that person. If it was anybody else, I would hear what you're saying. But that person. And they didn't even do it nicely. But it, it, it is true what they're saying. But, but because it's that person, it's too much. Have you noticed he's done that? He does that. At the lowest point of this I've ever seen in, in the history of mankind was with God used a donkey to rebuke a prophet. Fortunately, he's never had to go to that extent with me yet. But I have learned that even when someone raises something about me that's, I, I kind of know it's true, but it's like, I, I can't. I, I can't. It's, it's not, not, not with this person. They're making their issues, my, my, my issues, they're projecting, but, but actually deep down I know there is some truth in what they're saying. And God wants you to take the some truth, forgive them, release them, and say, God, God I, I, they've got issues, but, but I, there is some truth in what you're saying here. And I acknowledge that, Lord. And would you forgive me and transform me and make me new? Amen. Let's close eyes. And maybe um, oh, the, the goods are there, that side. Eh? We, I, we, just in closing and as a response, it would be good to just break bread and close together and we'll, we'll go from this place. But, Lord Jesus, this morning, we acknowledge that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit. And what a treasure and a joy that is. God, and you are our hope. You have forgiven us, you've washed us, you're a merciful God, and you have given us your Holy Spirit. And you want us to grow. And God, we want to just, if we have stunted or, yeah, just stopped growing, stopped growing in love, stopped growing in maturity, we want to repent this morning and say, God, we hear your voice. We want to grow again. We want to make our hearts soft again. We want to continue to be transformed into the image of your Son. 
Thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, I want to pray. I, I was joking about it, but I feel like for many of us, we don't actually want to acknowledge our faults because we are afraid of rejection from God and from people. I feel like this morning God would want to say, I'm, I'm slow to anger. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. But do, do turn to me and I will wash you clean. Thank you, Lord Jesus.